0: Tonight we're going to be in Hebrews chapter four. Uh, Hebrews chapter four. The title of my message is "Come boldly, all you unfaithful." Hebrews chapter four. Let me tell you a story about a lady named Colleen Chow. Uh, some of the ladies that went to the Revive Our Hearts, uh, Revive Our Hearts conference, know of this lady. At 18, she had the world in her hand. She was going to change the world for Christ. She loved Jesus, and she loved the Bible, and she had the gifts and the abilities to make a huge impact, to be an influencer for the kingdom of God. She was an editor, a blogger, and, a, and prominent in Christian publishing. And she had aspirations to become like some of her heroes, Amy Carmichael, Betty Stamm, and Elizabeth Elliot. But God had other plans. She personally wrestled in her life with singleness while all her friends, in her words, were popping out babies. In her mid-30s, she did eventually marry her husband, Eddie. Just as the time she got married, her health began to unravel. She suffered from chronic illness, insomnia, and physical pain, wrestled with anxiety and depression, 11 months into her marriage, the Lord did bless her with a child at the age of 35. But sadly, this boy had health complications of his own. Uh, periodic fever syndrome, asthma, severe intestinal issues, and multiple food allergies. God had fulfilled the longing of her heart to be a wife, and mother, but she was riddled with pain, and she felt alone. She felt isolated. She felt like no one understood her. No one got her. And some days were so dark that she didn't even want to live through. And she says, this: there were moments in her pain where she felt like God's hand was too heavy, like he had singled her out for ruin. But it didn't end there. And then she found out news that she never wanted to hear. She was diagnosed with cancer, and at the age of 41, she's diagnosed with cancer, has a six year old son, seven year old marriage, and this cancer is terminal. What does Colleen Chow do now? I'm going to talk a little bit more about her in my sermon, but the title of the video is called Crushing Colleen. What does she do now in her life? What is God doing in her life? She aspired to be a beacon of light for the kingdom of God, to make a great impact for his name. What is God doing? Does he care? Does he understand the pain that she's going through? Can he relate to it? How can she get through this terminal diagnosis with her faith intact? Believers suffer from various trials in life, from health crises to financial woes to marital problems and other issues. We all wrestle with our souls, and in the midst of trials, we are tempted to despair. We are tempted to wander. We are tempted to ask God and plead with him, this is too much. What are you doing? God, do you understand me? Do you care about me? I cannot take this any longer. Today, what I want to do is to look into the book of Hebrews and help you and I realize that God does care, that he does understand, that he was born to experience suffering in life and in death on our behalf, and he wants wants to give us grace and mercy so that we need not despair and need not be in anguish any longer. Let's go ahead and read our passage today. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the Son of God, is a priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, so we must hold tightly to our faith and draw near to God's throne of grace. The members of the community that this author is writing to have been previously faced persecution, imprisonment, public abuse, and the loss of property, as it talks about in chapter 10, verse 32. Now they were being called again to endure suffering. They had grown weary as believers and were in danger of drifting away or worse, willfully persisting in sin and rejecting the Son of God which is why the author wants them to cling to Christ. You see, how I've, I'm going to do the framework of this message is I believe verse 15 connects verse 14 and verse 16. The word for that begins verse 15 signifies that connection to verse 14. And then the word then in the beginning of verse 16 signifies a connection to verse 15. I see verse 15 as the anchor. So we're going to start off with this, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You may be asking, and I was initially, what? is a high priest? What is the purpose of it? To the Jewish audience that is uh, listening to this, they exactly know the meaning, but I want to help uh, catch you up on it. In the Bible, the priests represented God to the people, and the priest represented the people back to God. The priest's primary responsibility in the Bible was performing sacrifices. The law of Moses required animal sacrifices to atone for sin and there was a lot of sin in Israel, and there must have been a lot of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Bible is a bloody reality of a wailing animal being butchered on an altar. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the splurting out of blood, the looking at the animal being pulled apart and the smelling of the burning flesh and bones. The closest thing I got to this was when I was in college and I was on a mission seminar in college and we, as part of our trip, we were going to slaughter a pig for a meal for about 25 people. Now, this pig, I shouldn't say it's a pig, that little oink oink, piggy piggy, no. This was a hog. This was a massive thing. And so what happened was they said two guys, myself was one of them, had to hold on to this pig. And while the, another man, uh, the caretaker of the place, would come, shoot the pig, and then uh, we would slaughter it and then cook it. Well, what happened is this pig did not want to become our bacon, so took off running. So you see a bunch of college students chasing after this pig, and it's squealing, going back and forth, back and forth, and then uh, one of the other guys, he jumps, and he lands on the pig, and it starts squealing, just starts squealing, and then quickly the caretaker comes, puts a bullet in the head, But did you know, pigs, when they get shot, they still are sporadic like that. And then they had a girl come and slice the throat, and blood went everywhere. And I got to experience that. (laughs) Why am I sharing that with you? This is a reality that the Israelites would have experienced. Not necessarily the chasing of the pig, obviously, another thing. And not pigs, because they're kosher. But they would have experienced this reality of just the blood pouring out, the animal squealing, removing limb by limb. And imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering sacrifice, knowing that it was your sin that made that sacrifice necessary. Imagine the frustration and knowing that you probably are going to be back tomorrow and the next week and the next day and the next day because you would continue to sin. Why would God make a system like this? To let us know that forgiveness is costly. To let everyone know that the punishment for sin is death. Why would he make a system like this? To make clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. One day of sacrifice for the Israelites was the most important. And that was the day of atonement. Where all the sins of Israel as a nation would be dealt with. One Bible commentary describes it as this. On that day, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and standing before the mercy seat, he would seek God's forgiveness and mercy on behalf of the whole nation. It's in this ceremony that Israel's covenant faithfulness is seen most clearly. Israel's religion was a relationship with God. uh, And human evil, it disrupted this relationship. While all worship and sacrifice during the year were concerned with the continuation of this relationship the day of atonement was the most solemn day of the year in which the attention of all the people focused upon the meaning of their existence life only held meaning if the relationship with god was maintained and this sacrifice was a great example of that but the high priest in their day was limited he couldn't enter the presence of God all the time, only once a year, and he was a sinful man. He pointed forward to someone who was greater. We have at verse 14, we have a great high priest who passed before the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He is great because he did pass through the heavens, meaning he has the ability to speak on our behalf to God. He is great because he is not a sinful man going to the holies of holies once a year but can go come back again and again. He is great because his sacrifice achieved the finished atonement for all people from every people, tribe, nation, and tongue. And as great as this is, it doesn't end. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, okay, that verse right there. We do not have a high priest who is unable. It could have been praised as uh, it's a double negative. We do not not being able. What the author wants us to get is just understand the importance. Is he is able to sympathize with us? He gets us. He understands us. They need to know that. Despite the various trials and difficulties and temptations that they may have, they have a God who understands, a God who cares, a God who has faced temptation and suffering and yet did not sin. We have a high priest who suffered like us yet was victorious and sympathizes with us. When we sympathize with sufferers, we attempt to identify with their pain emotionally Jesus goes deeper than this. He shares in their very experience of suffering. In um, chapter 2, verse 18, having been tempted with suffering and having learned obedience from suffering, chapter 5, verse 8. You see, here's the thing. Suffering and temptation go hand in hand. When you suffer in life, you're going to be tempted to despair. And when you are tempted, you are likely to give up on God and question his goodness. And what this passage is saying is he understands the pressure of suffering. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine a professional or Olympic weightlifter holding up a weight over their head, okay? The person that drops it after five seconds doesn't understand the full weight and magnitude of that weight. But someone who keeps holding it on there and keeps holding it and keeps holding it until the referee says drops, they understand the full weight of the, um, yeah, so the struggle right there. So it is with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced it to the end. He triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, here's what I would say. They were most real because he never gave in to temptation. He knows the strength of temptation far better than you and I ever will. Jesus could not get this perspective, though, if he had just come in as a man. If God just did like Adam and made him as a man, he wouldn't have been able to understand the life that we have. That's why he humbled himself and came as a baby to live a life and to understand the pain and suffering and the toils that we make. Let me explain to you from Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he, here's a key, learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. He knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, Despise. He knows what it's like to be sc- rejected, scorned, and shamed. He understands being embarrassed, mocked, and ridiculed. He understands being abandoned, misunderstood, and underappreciated. Jesus knows the pain of suffering, of being falsely accused. He experienced suffocation, he experienced torture. He was killed for our behalf. He knows suffering. He does. And he learned obedience through suffering. That's why he can sympathize with us in every respect. He may have not gone through necessarily the same exact situation that you are going through today. But he understands human pain. He understands human sorrow and anguish and agony of the soul. He's been touched by grief and misery and heartache. So if you have family problems, a wayward child who you've been praying to come back and you've been sharing the gospel with them over and over and they're not coming back, or if you have family problems and you've been sharing with a spouse or a relative this Christmas to come to God and they don't, he understands the cry of your heart. If you have marriage problems, tensions that build up how someone can betray you, he understands it physical problems, a bad diagnosis from the doctor, chronic health issues, he understands the soul's pains. Loneliness you feel, he gets it. The tears you cry at night, he understands it. The temptations you wrestle with, he understands it. You are not alone in your confusion. You are not alone in your uncertainty. You are not alone in your frustration. Jesus Christ understands you. He does. It's easy for us to think that God does not get us, but the Bible clearly says he sympathizes with us in our, notice this, in our weakness. Not in our strength, he gets our weakness. What a God we serve. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God, let us Let us hold fast our confession. What is confession? It could be translated, hold firmly to our profession of faith. Hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Hold firmly to what we believe. To confess means to both privately and publicly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Apostle John puts the importance of this issue concisely. 1 John 2.23 No one who denies the son has a father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. There was enormous pressure under this audience to give up their faith, to give up on Jesus. Their Jewish brothers and sisters, their aunts and uncles, were pressuring them to deny Christ. The Roman culture was pressuring them to deny Christ and declare Caesar as Lord. They were in a storm of suffering, and suffering leads to doubt. And doubt can lead to desertion if left unchecked. But they have a great high priest who passed through heaven. Jesus, as pastor, talked about this morning. Emmanuel, God with us, has come so that need not waver. They need not give up. They can cling to their faith that they believe. That phrase, let us hold fast or firmly, is used 47 times in the New Testament. That word can refer to a person "'Grasping of someone else, "'such as when Jesus grasped the hand of a sick person, "'the woman grabbed hold of the resurrected Jesus, "'or the lame man clung to Peter and John. "'In Hebrews four fourteen, however, the word refers to commitment. "'A uh, use found, for example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, "'where the Pharisees are said to observe "'the traditions of the Father.'" Similarly, Christians are challenged to hold the teaching they've been giving. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. While the heretic in Colossians, Colossians 2.19 has lost connection. More correctly, he does not hold to the head. By contrast, the churches of Philadelphia and Thyatira are challenged to remain doctrinally pure and hold fast to their commitments. The authors of Hebrews, therefore, is calling recipients of this sermon to remain committed to Jesus, holding the public confession of their faith. You see, I understand this idea of clinging because this is what happens with my daughter and I. One of the things I hate doing as a parent is having to take the kids to the doctor's appointment. Typically, I do try to hand it over to Amanda to take them to the doctor's appointment, but when it's time for their shots for school or whatever, it's time to call in Daddy. Why? Because our kids do not respond the best to getting shots, and I know my mom's watching here, so I know I did not respond the best to shots. So when we go to the doctor's office, and if they know it's going to be a shot, there is panic and terror, so we don't tell them anything about where we're going. But when we were in there, I remember the last time with uh, Layla, we're there. And the doctor has to give her a shot. She's trying to take off running away. She doesn't want to be there. Sorry, Layla. Um, she doesn't want to be there. But it's okay. Daddy was like this too. Um, she doesn't want to be there at all. But what happens is then, and you see this, and I just, the Lord just touched me because I realized this is how I need to cling to him, and she jumps into my heart, clinging onto me holding so tightly, digging her nails in me, and never wanting to let go, that daddy would protect her. Do you cling on to Christ like that? Do you cling on to your faith like that with every fiber in your being, never wanting to let go of him, never wanting to let go of your faith? Every muscle, every tendon, every ligament that you have, you're just clinging on to Christ. He's holding on to you like that. He is. He's not going to let you go. Nothing can pluck you out of the hand of God. That's how he's holding on to you. So we must hold on to him. But why do some people not hold fast their confession? Why do they stop believing? Why do they forsake their commitment to God? Here's just a couple reasons I came up with. One is persecution. You may be on the job and people have different views of the gender and sexuality even though God has made biological males and females in his image and likeness and you may be at work and you're facing pressure and you think is this really worth it is it really worth it to do because it's going to affect my livelihood persecution mistreatment could be one what's another people reason people don't hold fast or confession temptations the desire to sin, the desire for respect, the desire for refuge uh, from stress in life, desire to be rewarded or recognized. You do this by finding another man or another woman, compromising your faith with more money. Those things. But then there is another reason. Why do people not hold fast to their faith? And it's one that's becoming uh, popular in our day, uh, and it's called deconstructing. But what it means is this. I love Jesus, but I do don't love his church. So what they say, and it can happen in various ways, is there's church hurt. My church background was too strict. Or you fell out in a relationship with people at the church. Or people at the church disagree with you politically and they've exposed it. Here's the thing. I'm not denying that there's real pain, there's real hurt and real sorrow that can happen on behalf of people. But before you give up on God and his church... Are these issues with the teaching of the Bible or the Christian subculture? Are your issues what's going on in your local church or going on in the church on social media? And before you're ready to throw everything out because you like God but don't like his people, do you recognize that Christ came and died for his church? He came to purify it. And I need to add this, and I didn't want to, but do you recognize that you're a sinner too? That you make mistakes, that, that you have issues, that let me rephrase it, that I have issues, that I have a sinner, and then I can fall short? Do we recognize that? We want to quit on the church, and that people don't realize, when you quit on the church, you little, later on are going to quit on God. Please believe. It's it's just a slow fade. It's going to happen. But you need to realize that, yes, your friends can let you down. The church can disappoint you. But Jesus Christ will never disappoint you. He never will. So cling to him. Another thing could be just suffering. Suffering in life, especially as I talked about earlier, Colleen Chow a lady that had a passion and mission to serve God, and yet she's diagnosed with terminal cancer. She's taking care of a chronically ill child. How how do you do this? How do you cling onto your faith? You have to change your perspective. Listen to what she said. God created me to suffer and to enter into fellowship of his sufferings. That's why I'm here, not to have a comfortable life. She also said, to be in Christ's presence is joy. And Christ's presence is often for me most keenly felt in suffering. There is unique joy and purpose and mission when I'm walking closely with him in suffering. And then again, the suffering has been fashioned by God to sanctify me more into his image. He is making me more like his son and suffering is his Tool. How is she able to cling to Christ in the midst of suffering? Because she has a perspective change. She realizes as Jesus Christ learned obedience through suffering, she must learn obedience through suffering. That Jesus Christ's main tool of conforming us to his image and likeness is through suffering and pain and trials, but he is good, and his goodness is shown even in the midst of this pain. So cling to Christ. Because he's clinging to you. And lastly, my point, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Since we have a sympathetic and sinless great high priest, we should also draw near to his throne of grace. Because our Savior is compassionate and understanding we should feel free to go to him at all times. This is the second exhortation in our passage today. Under the old covenant, only one person was allowed into God's presence, the high priest. But now we all are allowed there. So why should we draw near? We need to draw near because we need to recognize that we are weak and feeble people susceptible to falling away. It's why earlier the author warns the audience to watch their heart and life. Let me just read to you uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, or verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We don't come as people who have everything right. And that's where we need to realize it. We don't have everything right. We come as people who are desperate and needy of help, who are weak and weary and susceptible to falling away. We come humbly, knowing that we have a high priest who understands all of this and wants us to come to him. When should we draw near? Notice in the passage, in time of need. It is, we should have this idea to draw near to him constantly. When do we need God? For some of us, we only turn to God in urgent times of life. And you think you can handle everything on your own, but then God is just 911 call away. But the fact is, every breath that you have, every step that you take, every bite that you eat is by the grace of God. So we should come to him. When? When? We need God every hour. We need him every minute. We need him every second. We need him every millisecond. We need God at all times, and he's available at all times. We are not I-N-D-P-E-E-N-D-E-N-T people. We're not independent people. We are dependent people, we need God. Get this in your head. And here's the thing. He wants to give us his mercy and grace at all times. For, so for us Christians, we must draw near at all times because at all times we need him. How should we draw near to him? Notice in the passage, with confidence. The word confidence in the New Testament is used to describe fearless proclamation of the gospel. Twice in Acts, Paul is of uh, reference to speaking the gospel with boldness, okay? Uh, Acts nine twenty eight. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly or with confidence in the name of the Lord. Acts fourteen three. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly or with confidence for the Lord. When the author is talking about confidence, he knows the audience will lack confidence approaching God because of sin in their lives. God's wrath is a consuming fire, and fear and trepidation over our sin can lead us to shy away from approaching him because we are unworthy for him. We have succumbed to the same sin over and over again. Or maybe we're not respecting our spouse, or maybe, teens, you're not honoring your mother and fathers, or maybe you're addicted to distractions But he still wants us to come confidently, boldly, without shame. You see, he doesn't grow weary of us, even sinful people coming to him. He wants us to come to him over and over again so we can have confidence to go to the throne of grace. And what can we expect? Mercy and grace. Not getting what we deserve and getting what we do not deserve. Let me say an example. This isn't a real story, but let's say my son, Amari. Amari and I, uh, let's say he is playing in the living room, and I tell him not to play with the ball in the living room, and he kicks the ball through our glass window and shatters it. Okay, how is dad going to react? Oh, son, it's, it's not a problem. No, I'm going to say, go up to your room, give me some time to decompress so that I can deal with you later. Okay? So I get up waiting to discipline him, but then I stop and I realize he comes and he says, Dad, I am so sorry for what I have done. I did not obey you. I should have done this. I don't give him the discipline that he rightfully deserves. That's mercy, not getting what he deserves. But then to add to that, let's say after I say, okay, I'm also going to go and take you out to get your favorite ice cream. That's grace, getting what he does not deserve. We don't realize that with God, he gives us mercy, not getting what we deserve, and grace, getting something that we do not deserve. We should be excited about this. But why, for some of us, do we not feel this need of excitement? Why do we not have this? It may be because we have a small view of sin. We don't recognize our depravity, our wickedness. And because of this, God's grace is small. You don't really think you need it. But maybe on the other side, you're in despair over sin and suffering in your life because you have a small view of his marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, and so you struggle with the flesh. It's too unbearable. Jerry Bridges writes, we can never rightfully understand God's grace until we understand our place as those who need his grace. We were dead in in our transgressions, but God intervened. We are in bondage to sin, but God intervened. We were objects of his wrath, but God intervened. We were lovers of the lust, but God intervened. Lovers of pride, but God intervened. Lovers of self, but God intervened. Because of his great mercy to us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The mediator has made a way for us to get to the Father by his atoning sacrifice. Church family, we have a sympathetic high priest who understands the pain and suffering that we go through and wants us to draw near to him, wants us to cling on to our faith. So hold fast. God is there for you. Hold fast to your faith. Never forsake it. Hold fast because you have a king, a lord, a master, a creator that loves you, that knows you. And wants to give you grace every day. Let's pray. Father I thank you so much for this text. I thank you so much Lord. Again just for your mercy. I just can't continue to believe. That you would come. In the form of a baby. For us. That you would go through life. In this sinful cursed world. To be rejected by people. To be despised. To be mocked. To be ridiculed all on our behalf. You set an example for us, Lord, and you want us to live by this example, and you promise to give us your strength to do it. Lord, I thank you again so much for this day. In your name, amen.